0: you're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. For for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. At the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then on to the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast bringing you the best in family and local history from New Zealand, the Pacific, and beyond. Your heritage now. Kia ora koutou. welcome back. Today, historian Megan Hutching looks at the development of Auckland suburb Glen Innes by revisiting interviews with residents recorded as part of an oral history project funded by the 1990 Commission. Please follow the links on our SoundCloud page if you wish to view the images mentioned in Megan's talk. It has been fascinating and slightly disturbing, I confess, to revisit these interviews recorded by Sarah Dalton, Jennifer Andrews and me who worked on the original project. The project came about because of a grant to Auckland Libraries by the 1990 Commission and some of you will remember what that was. It was a funding source set up when Aotearoa New Zealand was commemorating the 150th anniversary of the signing of Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Auckland Libraries received funding for a photography project and for an oral history project. My warmest thanks are to Jane Wilde and Theresa Graham who were job sharing at the library at the time and who were responsible for managing those two projects and for giving me a job on the team. (laughs) Theresa and I worked closely together during the 18 months of the oral history project and I owe her a great deal. Her encouragement and support set me on the path to becoming an historian specialising in oral history, the work I've done for the past 30 years. It's been fulfilling and endlessly interesting, and I'm very grateful to Teresa for the opportunity to get started. For the 1990 Oral History Project, we broke the work down into various subject areas. One of these was studies of two suburbs, Glen Innes and Blockhouse Bay. Today's talk is about the interviews recorded for the Glennonist study, and I just want to note that I'm not using any sound clips today because I didn't want to test the technology too far. We wanted to record the stories of people who had moved into the suburb as the big state housing project got underway, building project got underway after the Second World War. And we wanted to record stories of change, in other words. I'm going to start with some background to state house building. If you want a really good background and an interesting read, I recommend Ben Schrader's We Call It Home, published in 2005, which is a history of state housing in this country. The first government to build state houses was the Liberal administration of Richard Seddon. In 1905, Seddon introduced the Workers' Dwellings Act and its purpose was to provide urban workers with low-cost, suburban housing away from inner-city slums. Now, this photograph shows Freemans Bay in Auckland in the early 1900s, and it's not a slum, as you can see, but it does give you an impression of how close together the houses were, and actually still are. (laughs) Although several hundred workers' dwellings were constructed under the Workers' Dwellings Act, the scheme never really prospered. It was too expensive, I think. And it wasn't until the first Labour government came to power in 1935 that state house building entered its first boom period. Like the Liberal government, Labour wanted to provide new new suburban homes for working class people living in dilapidated inner city districts. The great economic depression of the late 1920s and 1930s had pretty much ended new house building in this country with the effect that there was also a housing shortage, especially for those on low incomes, something which sounds very familiar to us today. In building these homes, the Labor government wanted to stimulate local industry and provide work for those left jobless by the Great Depression. Under the leadership of the Under Secretary for Housing, John A. Lee, the government began the largest housing construction scheme in this country's history to date. It bought hundreds of hectares of suburban land across New Zealand and private builders erected thousands of high quality, modern state houses. In September 1937, Prime Minister Michael Joseph Savage opened the first of these in the Wellington suburb of Miramar. By 1939, state houses were being completed at a rate of 57 each week. And there were ten thousand applicants on the state house waiting list, just to give you some idea of what those that housing shortage was like. The Second World War halted building until 1944, after which whole suburbs were constructed, one of which was around Glenys and Pamure. a bit about Gleninus and I'm grateful to the um, Gleninus Business Association for the information from its booklet Gleninous Village looking back 60 years 1956 to 2016. The area is significant for Māori because it lay on the trading route between the Manukau and the Waitamata harbours. The modern name comes from William Innes Taylor who had a large farm in the area which extended northwards from near present-day Tanewa Street to Riddell Road and eastward from Line Road and the Sierra Street to the Tāmaki River. The farm occupied about two-thirds of the residential area that we now know as Gleninus. After Taylor's death in 1890, the farm was leased for a while before the subdivision of that part of Gleninus estate lying to the south of West Tāmaki Road began in 1912. In 1924, James and Norman Taylor, Um, William's Sons, decided to subdivide another 40 hectares of the Gleninus estate. This included two areas which they offered as public reserves, a lot around what is nowadays Taylors Hill, and a separate area of just over two hectares at Point England. Around 1945, the Taylors sold the rest of their land to the government for state housing. Although not all of this was used for housing, the Point England Reserve was left as farmland. Like many other government initiated suburbs at that time, the sections were allotted by ballot in order to help establish returned servicemen into society. Eddie LeBourne worked as a carpenter building houses in the Gleninus area. Eddie had trained as a carpenter after returning from service in the Middle East during the Second World War. The training was provided under the Government's Rehabilitation Scheme, which Finance Minister Walter Nash explained was intended to restore to ex service men and women the opportunities that they had missed out on because of their war service. Priorities for the scheme were the provision of state houses and education and trade training facilities. Eddie LeBourne was part of the Trade Training Scheme, which was focused on trades connected with house construction because of the acute need for, house, for houses, such as the State House Building Programme in Glen Innes. As well as houses built by those being trained on the Rehab Scheme, Fletcher Residential Construction, BMA, which stood for Bass, McCracken and Allen, and Mead Construction, and there were probably others, all worked to build houses in the area. Not all the houses were state houses. Eddie Le Bourne remembered that when he worked for BMA, there would be gangs of men doing different jobs. We'd all be working on different houses. They had the foundation gang, framing gangs, flooring gangs, outside finishes, and then the inside finishes. Six to each gang, eight or nine houses going at a time and Fletcher Residential were also building around the area. There'd be anything up to 12 houses on the go at the same time, all in various stages of development. It was a gradually ongoing development of the area for a number of years. He continued, we had to be out of a house in under 10 days. Despite that speed though, Eddie LeBourne said that they were well built. Anyone that derides a state house doesn't know what they're talking about, he said. He'd lived in Evandale Road in a state house himself, so I guess he knew what he was talking about. In 1955 Auckland City Council approved the Ministry of Works plans for a town centre in Gleninus. The land was taken from local farmers under the Public Works Act without any compensation. It was to be a purpose-designed centre to service the new eastern suburbs. The plan for the town centre provided for 40 to 50 shops, a post office, a hotel, underground power and telephone lines, and a picture theatre, although that was never built. By 1958, the first shops were built. One was Samuel's of Gleninus in Mayfair Place. In an interview with Sidney Samu- Samuels, he, re- he remembered that he was present at the ballot for sites in the town centre, which took place at the late lamented His Majesty's Theatre in central Auckland. He was asked to act as the chair of the initial Glennonist Business Association, and he'd had previous experience running a business in Swanson Street in the centre of town. He recalled, This centre was planned and designed similar to Wainui Mata. The only thing is the centre is bigger than Wainui Amata. Samuel was chair of the Business Association for 12 years and recalled that he saw a lot of changes coming and going. I pushed for a lot of things. I pushed for the post office. I pushed for buses. I pushed for the changing of the police station from Panmure to Glennos, And the place really zoomed. We worked very hard to develop the area. We had some good people on the committee. It was a very successful development. Eddie Le Bourne also recalled the building of the centre. He said the first building to go up in the Gleninus centre was the hotel, which was between Line Road and Anna Avenue, around 1954. It looked like a Mexican hacienda when it first went up. There'd been a few alterations since then. It was the first one and then the shops came up around it, built up gradually. By 1960, 20 shops had opened for business and a further 16 were under construction. Sydney Samuels recalled that to begin with, there was no bank. There was no post office, there was no bank. The Bank of New Zealand used to come here once a week, on a Thursday, I think it was, with a mobile van. Of course, their biggest customer was the pub. We had to stand and wait while the pub did its banking. While the shopping centre may have been planned and built from the start, facilities like kindergartens, schools and libraries often lagged behind the development of housing And there was little access to private or public transport. Sydney Samuels recalled that the Business Association had difficulty getting the Auckland Transport Board as it was then called to start a bus service to the area. He said they were determined not to service the community until it was fully developed but I got buses here long before it was developed. The board said we can't put buses on for one store. I said you're not putting buses on for one store This will be a centre, and you promised it. When they planned the centre, you agreed to service it. That was the argument I put up. It took a long time. It took about three or four years before we got a bus service. The community library was built in 1965, and later on there was a supermarket. In the 1970s, many traditional town centres lost businesses and customers to what was then the new phenomenon of the shopping mall. Gleninus was no exception. Pakarunga Plaza became a major drawcard for shoppers, and Sydney Samuels recalled the effect. The BNZ had built quite a big bank in Gleninus, but of late they've cut it down to an agency. The main bank is in Pamuil now. And of course Botany Downs and Sylvia Park are the latest big scale mall complexes to lure the consumer dollar. Another community facility, Ruapuotake Morai, was built in Line Road in the 1970s. This was a community initiative. Elizabeth, or Betty as she was known, Smith recalled her involvement in the original committee which began the planning for the Morai around 1972. A few of us met, she said, to form a committee to start building a Morai for Glen Innes. We did a lot of fundraising, dances in Pamur, bring and bys, gala days, everybody worked my baking came in handy, then it sort of petered away for a while and then someone started it again and that's how rūpōtaka came to be. The marae had the support of the whole community including the Glen Innes Business Association and was eventually opened in the late 1970s. It was and remains well used and provides whānau-based services to Māori and the wider community. Another interview in the collection that we um, recorded in 1990 is with Hedemia Mohi and that covers the planning and building of Kōkiri Marae in nearby Mangere or Mount Wellington. I want to turn now to the experiences of living in Glen and that we recorded in the 1990 project. Our assumption is that it must have been a delight to move from a small flat or sharing cramped conditions with family all from a transit camp, such as Camp Bun, where Sylvia Park is now, to a brand new house with all new facilities and amenities. It was not always the case. Michael Belsham recalled moving with his family to their new house in December 1951. My mother was crying because she didn't want to go, and my father was upset. We were all scared, and I think he was too, quite frankly. It was a big experience for them. And we got to this house, well you should have seen it. You imagine there's this house and it's a big section that sloped upwards. There were no footpaths, there were no domestic paths, there were no fences, no clotheslines, there was no soil, it was just clay and building debris everywhere, and it was raining. I remember that because my father and his mate fell over getting back up getting up the bank, and there was a lot of language and carry on because they got everything damaged. Women with small children often found their lives quite restricted in these new suburbs. Jean Hart remembered that when she and her family moved to Silverton Avenue, off Tanifa Street in 1955, there was no town here. My husband used to walk from here down to the Gleninus station. It would be dark in the winter time, and there'd be cows and horses that he'd have to dodge getting to the station. There was no shops, nothing. We had to go down to Point England to get a bus to Pamir to do our shopping. There was a bus from the top of West Tamaki Road twice a week to go into town, which she means Auckland City. Sydney Samuels might have wanted buses to go to the Glen and the shopping centre to help his business and the local residents. For Jean Hart, a bus service made her everyday life much easier. Michael Belsham again. I think my mother took it the hardest because she'd come from the city, Ponsonby, and she'd left behind her parents. She'd come to a place which was really very desolate. There were, lots of, there were our lots of houses, and on the other side of the road there was nothing. There were no shops, for example, and we didn't get shops for, I think, two years. My mother thinks it might be three. But he goes on, but we actually had the most incredible number of people turning up, entrepreneurs. For example, there was a man who had an old bus. He had this old bus, and he had everything that you could find in it. I can remember going on there and the shelves were so narrow that only one person at a time could get in. He made the most of the room that he had. He used to come round twice a week and he was known as the grocer truck, even though he was a bus. And then there was the fruit man. He had an old truck and he used to gasp and wheeze his way around the place. He brought the fresh fruit and he came twice a week. We used to have a biscuit tin, one of those big deep ones that the cream crackers came in, and that was our bread bin. Everyone had one of those. The bread man used to come along, you'd leave your money inside, and you'd get these loaves of bread. I think it was crown bread, the old loaves that you could break in half. We'd get a couple of those, and the milkman came every day as well, and we had a meat delivery man. I think he came once a week. There's a photo of Kestrel Place in 1960, things are looking a bit more settled here, the road still looks a bit rough, I can't work out what those piles of stuff is, but the gardens have been established and the trees and shrubs are growing well. The boy in the photograph reminds me that a number of interviewees spoke about how their children played in the area in in the early days. Betty Smith recalled that her children had to find their own entertainment. Going up the hill to Merton Road, they had a willow tree there with a pond around it. And they'd go up there and bring me tadpoles home. They'd come home with rabbits they'd catch up there. There was a farmer. He had horses and cattle up there. He wasn't all that happy with the kids going up there. And Michael Belsham also spoke about growing up in Gleninus, going to Winstone's quarry, bike rides, and going to the beach on the weekends. By 1981, the trees had grown more. Eddie Le Bourne, interviewed in 1990, remembered that when he'd first moved from Ponsonby to Coates Crescent in 1948, coming out of places like Ponsonby, you weren't used to trees, not like it is here now with the trees all around. Reflecting on her life in Gleninous after moving there, Betty Smith recalled that it was like one big family. We knew everybody, all the neighbours. It was really good. When we moved here, all the families had young children, all about the same age. Everybody would call on each other. And Jennifer Andrews then asked her, how has that changed now? And Betty replied, it doesn't exist anymore. A lot of them have moved out and new ones come in. Betty's comment made in 1990 seems a good point to move on to consider more recent changes in the area. I mentioned before that one of the reasons for the great state house building projects in the 1940s and early 50s was a lack of housing due to the economic effects of the 1930s depression and then the government's focus on its involvement in the Second World War. In the past 10 years, we've once more seen a lack of housing in this country. And one of the ways of dealing with that was subdivision and cross leasing of sections, which really took off in the 1980s. And then in the 2010s, this intensification became more marked. After some previous local body amalgamations, on the first of November 2010, Auckland City Council was amalgamated with other councils in the Auckland region into the new Auckland Council. One focus of the new council, under then Mayor Len Brown, was to curb the spread of the city and to intensify housing in the central suburbs. Those large sections that we saw around Glennon estate houses in the previous photos were no longer to be the norm. The plan was for each to be replaced by two or three new houses. The state ho- <coughs> the state owned houses in Glennus, now deemed tired, seemed a place to begin. The plan was to demolish two thousand eight hundred aging state homes and replace them with seven and a half thousand new dwellings in Tamaki, the area encompassing Gleninus and neighbouring Panmure and Point England. Tamaki was designated a special housing area. These had been established in 2013 as a way of fast-tracking housing developments that included affordable housing. They were designated to provide more housing to meet the demand, which was particularly great in the main centres. Key to these areas being designated special housing area status was the requirement that developers provide at least 10% of affordable housing within the development. In Auckland special housing areas were established as an interim measure while the Auckland Unitary Plan was being developed. Some special housing areas were were disestablished in September 2016 and the last was disestablished in 2017. The Tāmaki project was and still is run by the Tāmaki Redevelopment Company in partnership with Housing New Zealand. To begin, the Tāmaki Redevelopment country, com- country company planned to build approximately 400 new homes in a special housing area within the Fenchurch neighbourhood in Innes. The new han- homes were in Tanewha Street near Sunnymead Street as part of an Auckland Housing Accord development that will provide over 5,000 new homes in Tarmaki to help offset Auckland's housing shortage. The, um, was published in Our Auckland, and Auckland Council publication in April 2015. The increased supply of affordable, healthy and secure homes in the Tāmaki area will help boost the social and economic wellbeing of the community, said Peter Whaafeu, General Manager of the Tāmaki Redevelopment Co- Company at the time. In a tāmaki Regeneration Company media release of February 2016, they noted that The TRC has been operating for three years and over a year ago the government announced that it will transfer approximately 2,800 houses and land currently owned by Housing New Zealand to the TRC on the 31st of March 2016. Thus the Tamaki Regeneration Company became the new landlord to all social housing tenants. The plan was not greeted with universal delight. It meant moving dozens of state housing tenants out of their homes. And critically, not all of them were offered accommodation in their area. Some had been living in their home for decades. When Jean Hart was interviewed by Jennifer Andrews in 1990, she'd lived in her home in Silverton Avenue since 1955. That's 35 years. And people like Jean were those who were most affected by the proposed redevelopment of the area. Silverton Avenue, where Jean lived, runs off Taniwha Street and is near Fenchurch Street, so it was in the heart of these new developments. Also in the heart of the new developments was Nikki Roti. She'd been given the lease on her house in Taniwha Street in 1999. Her mother had lived there since the 1980s. <coughs> Ownership of the house was transferred from Housing New Zealand to the Tāmaki Regeneration Company in 2016 and the property was one of the the 2,500 state houses pinpointed for demolition to make way for new houses. Many of the properties nearby were detenanted, as the word was, and demolished to make way for new housing. Nikki Roti's house was one of the six properties that was to be demolished and replaced with 12 four bedroom houses to be privately sold. Nikki didn't want to move, She and her supporters opposed the plans, which they saw as a mass sell-off of state housing. It was also seen by some as symbolic of gentrification amid Auckland's housing crisis. Nikki received an eviction notice in October 2016, and afterwards protesters gathered outside her house to support her stand. In 2017, Nikki Roti was shifted to a new state house 1.6 kilometres away, and soon after, her old place was reduced to rubble. Her new place is a two-storey, two-bedroom home in a block of terraced housing, but she missed her old place and her neighbours. In an article in the Herald in October 2018, Nikki said, This place is not built to last. The wood that was in my old place was all rimu. And Edie Le Bourne would have agreed with her comments. I showed you the photograph of Kestrel Place before, the one with the small boy. The area is now a combination of privately owned and state owned high density housing. I've been talking about Glen and its stories of change. From farmland to housing, built to provide homes for those who could not afford to buy their own to demolition and to a rebuilding as the city tries to stop its ever outward expansion. Changes too in what is considered a good place to live. Gone are the big sections and the separate dwellings, replaced by terraces with small gardens and courtyards. These are the changes of a hundred years. Yes, well, as I said to you, it was it was very at the beginning it was quite disconcerting listening to myself in particular um, of of those old recordings. Um, I suppose one of the things I realised was that I have become a bit more relaxed now in terms of my interviewing style. Um, In those days, when when we were all very brand new. it, we did sound a bit as though we were reading off a questionnaire where we were asking our questions um The other thing I think I noticed was, and I've noticed this in other other things things that I've done as well is that oral history recordings are fantastic to listen to, but they're not they're not the easiest things to use unedited um if you're trying to write something or produce maybe a podcast or something like that from them, um, because of their very nature and it's one of the charms of them and one of the great things about them, they are quite discursive and they they range all over the place in no particular order. And um, that's one of the things I really enjoy about interviewing and um, being an oral historian, but it also does make it... Um, it makes it time consuming when you want to when, when you want to use them as um shall i say evidence in inverted commas um in and particularly if you're if you're you know producing some sort of published material and there's plenty of other oral historians who i can whose names i can see here who i'm sure would probably agree with me <sighs> so so on the whole it was lovely i mean it was great Going back and listening to them and and remembering, particularly with mine, remembering the interviews and then when listening to the others, remembering the the great team that we had. But um, it wasn't quite as straightforward as, as you might think. You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. Stay tuned for more Heritage Talks. You can find further information on our page at Soundcloud or see the Auckland Libraries website.